Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I want you more. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, yes, you did. He's trying to weasel his way out of the responsibility for that. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled. Are you in? Yeah, we're nestled. Nestled. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to bet Roger Moore has never lifted a microphone. <laughs> no, he's never is. No. I bet he's lifted a glass. He's lifted his eyebrows on many occasions. As he's once said to me, Burl, my acting range goes all the way from A to B. <laughs> And now, did, did he did he say that to you? No, but he said it. Oh, okay. I heard about it. <laughs> he did call me on the phone. Pretty, pretty honest guy, because, yeah, that, that really is his acting range. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I love that, dude. Yeah, I love that range. I told you how he called my, my house and left a message on the answering machine. Uh, no. He called my house. <laughs> and he, did he leave a message on the answering machine? And he left a message on the answering machine, and I wasn't home. I had taken my son to the video store where he rented three Roger Moore James Bond movies. And we come home with a little red light flashing on the answering machine, and he's standing there holding the videos in one hand and presses the button on the answering machine with the other. And there's Roger Moore on the answering machine. Going, Hello, this is Roger Moore. See, that's one of those beautiful moments. Yeah, the look on Jordan's face was absolutely priceless. Yeah, I remember I, I it was a similar uh, thing. I rented a bunch of Godfather movies. Mm-hmm. I got home, and there was a... Uh, Horse in your head. There was a message <laughs> on my answering machine from Jerry Lewis. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Say, Magic Matt Allen, on the radio, click. <laughs> that's, that was him. That was him. Hi, I'm Burl Bear. <laughs> There is Howard Lapidus. Yes, I am. And uh, the guy over there. That, coughing. Uh, coughing. That's not me coughing. I'm not the senile old man who hacks and coughs his way through this show. Well, you're, you're, half, you're halfway. Halfway like right. I am the senile old yeah, man. Yeah, but Mark has been coughing for, like, months now. Well, Decades. It's not easy. No, being green. Yeah, it's not, not easy being green. Being green. Hi, I'm Burl Bear. Looking <laughs> to my own mind, taking time on my busy schedule, combing my hair and watering my legend <laughs> to host this fine radio program. On the telephone, a man who should know better by now. <laughs> Ken Urell, and then who else we got? Is you got your wife there today, or is she avoiding My you? wife, Dory, is also here. Oh, there we go. Hey, yeah. 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 Because yeah, I, 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 I heard it was Ken, and I said, ah, again? Oh, my yeah. <laughs> uh, In case you don't know who Ken is, he's a man who's got a lot of explaining to do to his kids and his wife. <laughs> he's also got rave reviews. Did you, see the, did you see the rave review of Betrayal in Blue that just came out? Yes. That was a That is a yes. rave review. You know that one, don't you, Ken? Yes, I thank my mother a lot. Yes, yeah. you know, I was going to say, it's the one I wrote for you. <laughs> now, I have read the book Betrayal in Blue more than once because I, I wrote it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Ken and Frank C. Gerardo Jr., we start the book with Dory. So I think it's only fair we should start with Dory. Because, see, the theory was Dory is that uh, cop books are like pretty heavy testosterone stuff, you know, a lot of male stuff. And uh, men are good at telling you where the bodies are buried and facts and data. But uh, women will tell you more about how that data feels to them. Dory brings sanity to the whole story. Yeah, she does, because you guys are out of your effing minds. That's true, we were. Uh, The book begins with, with Dory at home minding her own business watching the L.A. riots on TV. And, Dory, what happened next? Well, then I got a visit from many a police officer, the county police, showed up at my door. Uh, uh, Thank you for having me, first of all. Well, Well, thanks for joining us. This is a a, a treat. Thank you so much. This was a knock on the door. What was that? I said, there's a knock on the door. You know, Dave's not here. Knock on the door. And my Rottweiler was barking pretty heavily. So um, I respond. I looked out the window with my daughter on my hip, and I saw many, many cops running up and down the block in my bushes, guns drawn, true. Wow. And uh, I said, yeah, oh, I was in my pajamas. It was um, 
well after nine, so past my bedtime and my children's bedtime. I said, hold on just a minute. I opened the door. I said, let me put my dog away. They, they, they agreed, which I did. I put him in this kennel, and I opened the door, and they all joined the party. Well, how delightful. Were, weren't you a little concerned on why suddenly the boys in blue are showing up at your house with guns drawn? Well, um, it was jarring to say the least. However, um, I wasn't... Howard, what are you doing? Yeah, well, you were shocked, weren't mm -hmm. you, when these guys came crashing in? Well, it was very jarring. Um, but I had a feeling that this time was coming eventually, so I wasn't that shocked. Ah, oh. oh, so you knew something was up. Well, I knew my husband was a corrupt cop, so yes. Now, did that bother you? <laughs> But did you guys have any conversations like, honey, I really wish you weren't a corrupt cop? Many, many, many conversations. Um, you know, I married him very young, very in love, still am. Good. 33 years later of marriage. Um, however, I didn't realize the extent of that Kenny is a man that makes his own decisions. Mm -hmm. So... Glossed over things, um, maybe not giving me the truth or... Minimized a bit. Even... I, I kept Dory very, very in the dark. It wasn't accurate. I did, I did not look for her insight on any of the things I was doing. You, you know, if you, if you would have looked for her insights. <laughs> found out a little bit, I would brush her off. So. Well, no. Um, he... he my insight was please stop. Yeah, uh, you know, we started in the beginning. She, she had explained what he explained was the truth, which I, I did believe to find out it wasn't accurate. Um, and I stood by him, but I quickly, quickly, quickly realized this it was a terrible idea. And... and um, and to realize at that point that he was going to make his own decisions, it didn't matter. I didn't really have any sway in it. As much as I thought I did, you did. that I thought I could reason with him, it, 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 was, it did not come to pass because it was a repetitive action of him doing what he wanted to do. Yeah, so guys it was not like a great that. time for me. So for those who don't know, why don't you tell us, just give us some background on what he was doing. As I said, I I didn't know the truth. Um, I know what he told me, which was very minimal, and it was not accurate. So. But you were seeing money that you weren't seeing before, right, Dory? In the very beginning, in the very beginning, he said, "Don't worry, trust me." You know. Um, Dory did not see the bulk of the money. I I kept it well. Stashed away. I, I, no, I saw the beginning of the money. Yes, the first, not, the not first the moment of the money. Not the bulk of money. No, correct. So you didn't know how much money he's stashing away. Did you wonder no, where the money was coming from to buy the new house? Well, my father had passed away, so a lot of that money came from my father. Ah. A lot of, a lot of funds were commingled with personal funds. Gotcha. Right. So, uh, so when things finally came breaking down, you probably wanted to slap him silly a few times. Uh, well, it was a very difficult time, a very difficult time. But I, you know, I knew it was trouble for a long time. I was the wife who was pacing through the house, waiting for her husband to come home. For the most part, I mean, that's really my story. I was not a cop or a corrupt cop or really in on it. Um, as, I was in on as much as he told me, and I believed what he told me. You know, I was very young and naive. Yeah, but that's, so that's, that's I was, you're not alone in that. I've talked to many uh, women who said, it's like uh, uh, Punch's mother, our friend Pablo Stanimirovic, the mother said, what did I know about sophisticated criminals? All I knew about America is what I learned in this apartment that I was living in. I didn't know that this wasn't normal with great exactly. wealth. <laughs> Women are uh, giving a husband a hug and a kiss goodbye, saying, have a nice day at work, honey, and having no idea what we're doing while we're at work. Yeah. That's, that's basically what it came down to. Yeah, so he was like very quiet uh, about what he was doing. 
Like at the end of a Godfather, uh, when Michael says to Kay, you know, Kay, one time you can ask me a question about what I do. And then he lies to her. And then he lies to her. Yeah. Exactly. I ask many questions over and over, trying to get them to the bottom, because I, I realized that things weren't adding up. But I had to, you know, if I'm going to stand by him or try to dissuade him as much as I did, literally beg him to stop. I still chose him as my husband and hope, <laughs> hope that um, Someday we could turn this would, around yeah, before. A light bulb would come up over my head and I, I would, yes. you know. Well, the light bulb didn't come on over your head. There was a searchlight. Unfortunately, that light bulb didn't hit until I was, you know, inside a, a drug dealer's house, and the house was raided. Then all of a sudden, oh, oh, oh gee I whiz. guess we're not supposed to be doing this. <laughs> you know, what, I, what I find admirable in, in many ways is that when the light bulb, when you did kind of grow up, shall we say, and become a mature, responsible adult, you were already an adult, <laughs> physically, already married, and uh, I think you had to go through a maturation process. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the criminal activity, even after our arrest and uh, out on bail, was still presented to me and made available to me, and I was done. I was out. That was it. I didn't, I wouldn't, I didn't want to have no more part of it, which is, a, you know, a long uh, process that um, comes clean in, in the book. Yeah. Now, the, the book we're talking about is Betrayal in Blue, which is a true story of the scandal that rocked the NYPD. I don't know how much it really rocked the NYPD, because internal affairs, uh, at least in, in your particular precinct, the guys, they knew what was going on. They, they definitely had an idea of what was going on. The investigator, they say it was following us. They didn't have any try-and-true facts against us, but the department heads knew there was definitely something going on. I mean, they had informants in the drug gangs that were informing on us to the DEA for, for years prior to our arrest. I mean, we got involved in 1987 with these drug gangs who had informants inside the DEA that were giving up my name and my partner's name, and we didn't get arrested until 92. So yeah. they knew what was going on. Oh, yeah, they knew. But they didn't want a scandal. Exactly. Well, you just had the 7-7 precinct scandal that broke out prior to us. So, they, they, you know, trying to keep things quiet. Yeah, it's not good PR to have too many scandals in a row. <laughs> Maybe somebody would have came down and said, hey, we got you guys. We know what you're doing. Knock it off. But yeah. they, let, they let you go on and on and on for whatever their reasons are, and then it eventually it's going to blow up. Oh, and yeah. Apparently no one learns because in the years since then, there's been how many more scandals? I mean, just recently you had uh, the NYPD, seven, eight guys that got arrested in a prostitution ring for running a prostitution ring. So it never stops. No. Well, yeah, the prostitution ring sounds like it might be a little bit more entertaining. I don't know. <laughs> you would think, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, of course, I was uh, informed of a case in Florida, very similar, where... The, the cops were uh, uh, doing something very similar, except with the uh, with the female cops. <laughs> and the, the, you'll get a kick out of this. The way the the guy had a suspicion that his his wife, who was a cop, was being unfaithful with other police officers. Yeah, I know the story you're talking about. Yeah, and he used to hide, me surprised. He used to hide in the closet and film them. Yeah, well, that, yeah that, that was. I, I think the name was Willis like that. Uh, his first big clue was he happened to go on Google Maps and the other cop's van was parked in his driveway. <laughs> it can happen. It can happen. <laughs> hey, you know, today is a, a very important date in my life. Yes, today is January 26, 1981 was the day I joined the police academy. So 38 years ago today, I joined the police academy. And how long were you in the NYPD? Until November 1989. Wow. And you got injured on the job doing a real police work. Yes, I, I got injured on the job doing real police work. Somebody tried to take my gun, a kid who was high on angel dust, and uh, he was in a stolen car. We chased him down. He crashed the car. He got out. He ran. Chased him down. I pinned him down in the yard, and he tried to take my gun out of my holster, and we fell down a flight of stairs. Wow, man. Then what happened? 
and then he somehow ended up in the hospital with a mag light to his head and, and had a turban around him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're talking. That, that, that's cool, called a light bulb no. coming on over his head. <laughs> prior, to, prior, to, prior to tasers. Yeah. Yeah, that's the mag light works well for that. Very good. Yes. <laughs> he got his light bulb <laughs> earlier than you did. <laughs> <laughs> but that uh, that injury, uh, they can't have a, a cop with a broken wrist or whatever it is you had. Yeah, they, they, unfortunately, you know, once you uh, do anything to the hand that you control your weapons with, they'll never put you back out on the street because, God forbid, you go back out in the street and there's a bad shooting or, you know, anything goes down, you're going to have the lawyers sue, you know, sue the department forever. So they, they just retire you. Even though it's some sort of full recovery or something like that, that's it? There, there's, there's no, my, my medical records was no full recovery. Even with the, the doctor's wrote, even with surgery, he will never return to 100%. Okay. So once you know, if I return to 99.9% and then get involved in some, some bad shooting or anything where my, they find out my hand is not 100%, the department will get sued. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about suing the police department, but that could be lucrative. Well, now, now I think they do. <laughs> Since uh, the invention of cell phone video. Yeah. The other thing is it used to be all those car chases where they smash all everybody's cars up. People go, gee, I wonder if I can sue the police department for smashing my car. They can. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is that I, I found out from a, a, a cop in San Diego that uh, he would do things that were wrong, not like the way you did, but violate, you know, a few civil liberties, et cetera, uh, and uh, get sued. And he wouldn't pay any attention to that for administration to deal with. I just go on doing what I'm doing, and they let me know how criminals let me know how it came out. Sometimes they don't. Right. Going after the insurance. Well, so you were no longer in the NYPD when you got popped. No, and I, I got uh, actually after my retirement, I stopped my criminal activity for almost a year, and then there was a other police officers that was still active, not my partner at the time, that got me involved back in dealing cocaine out on Long Island, and I obtained the cocaine through my partner at the time, who was still dealing cocaine and doing his old ways, and then we became partners again, and partners in crime, and everything fell apart three, four years later. Now, what, what one of the things, those stories that's in the book that I found fascinating was is how you guys happened to get popped. You became suspicious, didn't you, of one of the, uh, the buyers? Right, one of, one of uh, the dealers I had out on the street, I used to give him information about don't deal anything to a new customer until I have time to run their information, their license plates, their names, things like that, because they still had contact in the police department. I wanted to know who we were dealing with. And he had dealt to somebody he didn't know, and I, we had a, a very frank discussion where I told him, how wrong that was, and he gave me the, he goes, well, I had the guy's information. I was like, yeah, but you already dealt to him. And then when I ran the information, it turned out it was an undercover Suffolk County cop. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so that's when things went very wrong, and I attempted to <laughs> withdraw from this whole thing, but it was too late at that point. But it didn't take you long to figure out he was a cop? No, it took me like five minutes once he gave me the information. I called someone I knew at the precinct back in Brooklyn. They ran the plate, and the plate came back to a P.O. box, and his name was was uh, not connected to the P.O. box. It was, it was very easy to find out. And then there was also another car that I caught sitting up the block from my house like a week later, which was uh, Suffolk County Police Department detective car. And when I pass by them, it's, they're very obvious cars. You know who they are. They stand out. You know, four-door, Ford LTD, whatever they were at the time. And I got the plate. I ran the plate. And that actually came back to Suffolk County Police Department. And that's, you know, in a very residential neighborhood. It did not belong there. I knew it was out of place. It was three, three houses away from my house. So. so was was that on the Sunday morning, Kenny? Yes, that was the Sunday morning we were going out to breakfast. If you recall in the documentary, um, he ran that plate, and that's when I was more than begging on my hands and knees that, come on, there's undercover right here. But Kenny still had to finish his quest, I assume, because um, 
I knew the game was up then. Yeah, we all, we all knew the game was up. And, you know, like I said, I was attempting with, to withdraw, but by that point it was too late. They had the, the phones were all tapped. There was all types of wiretaps and tapes. So. And so when they came crashing in when you were sitting there, you know, chopping up a quarter block or something, uh, didn't you ask for a little police courtesy? <laughs> I did not, but there were uh, another police officer that was arrested. There were, there was, I think, seven of us all that got arrested at the time, and one of them said, hey, guys, uh, can we get a little courtesy here? So, <laughs> how'd, I mean, that, how'd that work out for him? <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't work out too well. So, I actually didn't know aye, aye. the extent of how big their their investigation was. I mean, it was 54 people arrested, something like 54. Wow. Or 55 people arrested, you know, seven police officers and a whole bunch of low-level dealers and civilians. They arrest, you know, all the users and everything that got caught on this kid's phone. Jeez, so, what a Michigan! <laughs> yeah, so once we got down to Central Booking, because we were the first ones down there, and then people started, the arrested people started to trickle in little by little, and I'm recognizing all of them. I'm like, oh, this is not good. No, no, not good. So I, I thought I just got, you know, maybe I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got arrested in, in a drug the local drug dealer's house, but no, that's not what it was. No, it was a bigger than that. Big, deep, deep yeah. investigation. So when you and your uh, former uh, partner... Did you wind up in the same slammer together? We did. We were in uh, out in Riverhead in Suffolk County lockup. We were there for two weeks, made bail, out for two days. Then they jacked the bail back up, had to go back in Monday. I was in for another two, three weeks until I was able to raise a, another bail because they, they changed it. Well, do you think you were going to run off to uh, uh, wherever it was, <laughs> Venezuela or someplace, Honduras? <laughs> Central American, Nicaragua. Nicaragua. That's I think they didn't think they would make the uh, bail. If, yeah, they probably. Because they upped it so high, they didn't think uh, we could gather the funds. Yeah, they, they were trying, the bail, but they they were trying to keep us in. So but eventually, you know, it took time and everybody made that bail. So, what, I mean, it's, it is an incredible story. It's just like there was that old uh, Mickey Rooney movie called Quicksand where he steals 20 bucks out of the cash register and plans to get it back to the cash register by morning, and everything goes to hell. <laughs> you know, it's like one thing leads to another, to another, to another, to another. And uh, it's kind of like uh, the story of your involvement. I mean, the first time that your partner, uh, Michael Dowd, says, Hey, Kenny, here's $100. Yeah, way, way, many years prior to the arrest, six, seven years before. And then, you know, that's uh, the crossroads in my career. What, what do I do? Somebody's offering me dirty money. I either got to turn them in and, you know, brand myself as a... Yeah, that's a real problem in my career, or I take the money and try to be quiet and hope it never happens again. So you made a decision. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I, I did. I made the decision. I, I, he shoved the money in my hand. I took it. I put it up in my locker, and it sat there for a while. And the longer we worked together, the more he, ex you know, and I, I don't want to blame him because at some point I could have said no and, uh, you know, turned him in or whatever. But yeah, but if you would have turned him in. More, more and more corruption and, and larger and larger amounts of money. And you walk into a drug location, and there's five kilos of coke and $50,000 in cash. You know, it, it's a little hard to turn down. Yeah. Could you have said no and not said anything? I'm sorry, I didn't. Could, could you, you have said, said no and not said anything? No, at that point, he's he's over. No, no. At that point, I'm exposed to it. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe is he setting me up? Does he already work for Internal Affairs and I'm supposed to turn him in and then I lose my job? I, it, it, it's like a spur of the moment thing that you don't plan when you're in the academy. They talk to you about, you know, bad cops and things like that. But they, I think it was a, a two-day seminar they gave us, which obviously doesn't apply to the real world. Yeah. The spur-in-a-moment thing, you don't have time to think. This guy's shoving money in my hand. What am I going to do? Yep. Um, I was involved in the Rampart scandal out here as a... Sure, in L.A., yeah. Yeah, as a researcher in IT. And I would get uh, two uh, the sergeants would come over uh, in flat jackets and escort me from one floor to another with the research material for somebody else to produce uh, reports for. And these two gentlemen, uh, along with the other officers involved in the investigation, were sequestered in a secret location. 
because they all were receiving death threats. Right, yeah, that's exactly They that. weren't afraid of the bad guys. They were afraid of other people. They were afraid of the fellow cops. And they truly hated what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, it was visceral. The other, the officers that were in my department, because there were um, retired uh, police officers that were uh, administrators within the department I worked in, and they uh, knew when they were coming and made sure that they weren't around. Yeah, I mean, this is a real catch-22. If you do, quote, the right thing, it's the wrong thing. Yeah. But uh, a silly aside, I'm riding in the elevator with these two gentlemen. One has a, a shotgun. The other has his uh, his lockout. I mean, he has it in his hand. The other guy has the shotgun. They're wearing flat vests. And before the elevator door opens, I looked at the two and I said, if bad guys were on the floor we're going to, who were they going to shoot at? <laughs> and they looked at me and started to laugh. They were going to be shooting at me, and they're wearing the jackets. Yep. <laughs> that was just your luck. Uh, fortunately, there were no bad guys waiting for you when you got off the elevator. No, they caught all the bad guys, so there were no one left. Oh, there was no one left, huh? Tragic story. I mean, it, this thing, is, uh, the reason the book is called Betrayal in Blue is because you were really faced with what I called Sophie's Choice in a Squad Car. You know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you don't say anything, you're screwed. And if you do say anything, you're screwed. Uh, and it, it's funny, well, not funny, but funny, strange, that that was my choice at the beginning of my crime career. And then... At the very end, six years later, I was faced with almost the identical same choice, and I made a 180-degree change and turned the guy in. And then, you know, now I'm labeled for the rest of my life. Well, so. yeah, except as we, we tried to make clear in the book, and it's not clear in the documentary. What was the documentary? Uh, well, the do unfortunately, with the documentary, it's a 90-minute documentary, and there's, you know, 150 hours of tape. They take me for two days. They take my partner for two days. They take my wife for a day, and, you know, there's four or five other people in the documentary. So there's way too much raw footage to, you know, condense into that little 90-minute documentary, and a lot got left out on the cutting floor. Yeah, in the documentary, it gives the impression that, that you ratted out your partner when you didn't. Prior to our arrest, yes. Yeah. But it happens It happens well after our arrest, almost two months after. And uh, to my way of thinking, basically what your, your choice was, if I don't say anything, he's liable to get killed or spend the rest of his life in prison. Right. And, and if he doesn't get killed, at the very least, the person they were going after was getting killed 100%. So. Yeah. So, what am I supposed to do with that knowledge? I find out someone's supposed to get whacked in this situation, not say nothing? No, you, I mean, this woman was going to be murdered if you didn't say anything. Exactly. I and mean, that's a rough choice to make because, especially with the documentary giving a false impression, I'm, there are people who, I bet, still say horrible things about you. Oh, yeah. They, they, they say, yeah they, I, I get people write me all the time. Well, I should have just let it happen and, and not and not have said anything. Like, so you're an advocate for murder? I don't, I don't get these, you know, everyone's a, a big uh, big mouth over the Internet because they're anonymous behind the screen. Yeah. Yeah, I remember one time there was a review of the book. It wasn't a review of the book at all. It was a review of you and your partner. Yeah, it was a review of myself and my partner. Yeah. Absolutely not. Someone who didn't read the book, they just had an account, they re and they put a review up under the book. I mean, Amazon thankfully removed it, but they put a, just a, a nasty words about myself and my partner. Yeah. Which has, you know, it's supposed to be a review of the book. Yeah, not a review of you as a human being or your past behavior. Exactly. That's yeah. why I like that latest review. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't post a review of, uh, of uh, Truman Capote's uh, opus this in reference to the people in it. Yeah. Uh, do you happen to know what that, that review said, the most recent rave review? You don't have to have it, like, tattooed on your forehead or anything, do you? No, I don't know. It's, it's, it's I think, like four or five down now. It's been a couple of reviews since then. But it basically just says it's the best cop book he's ever read. And I agree with him. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> and I really admire you, Dory. I mean, talk about stand by your man. That took a, a lot of love and a lot of guts. It's, it's how, all about love. How scared were you, were you that you made the wrong decision? Oh, um, 
Um, as far as what? Starting your singer going. As far as your Excuse husband. Excuse me? As far as sticking, standing by your man, did you did it ever? Well, I, I had, you know, obviously I had known they were up to no good for some time. Um, sometimes when I replayed in my head, I mean, honestly, you know, having a son and all at that time, I, I, I probably would have left in the beginning, taken my son and, you know, got the hell out of there because of the danger involved, but I didn't know what the danger was, you know? Yeah. I uh, met Kenny at 19. I married him at 20. I had our son at 21. He said, you know, you're going to be the mother of my children, and he is my family, and he still is. Um, I'm 54 now. And you, but you look I, great. I he looks like, great. The kids look great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're all thriving. I mean, you know, it, it truly worked out. I'm, I'm glad that um, maybe I didn't know everything, and I, and I stood by him. And I, I never thought about wavering. I mean, he's my family. He's really all I know, and my children, and the children, you know, the father of my children. And I, I, like, I have you, you have me, and we'll work it out. And it took many yeah, decades. You absolutely. could see that uh, it worked out. Very fortunate to have Dory behind me. A very, you know, good, Thank loyal you. woman. And uh, not every woman would have stayed in that situation. You know, the, the family would have broke up, went our separate ways, and I would have lost my kids and everything. But thankfully, I had, you know, she was the glue that held us all together. Yeah, it's really He's a fantastic father. He's a fantastic father. He did so much good to him. He's done the wrong things. He's made very poor choices. He's definitely evolved from what he was back then as far as being this man who will make his own decisions without thinking too much into how he would affect us. Mm -hmm. But I have no regrets sticking by Kenny. Yay. One iota. That's great. That's One iota. Because you know, if you can make it through those things, you can be welded together stronger than ever. And we celebrate our children's uh, children's birthdays, our grandchildren's birthdays, and uh, God bless if we see our great grandchildren. He stuck with me, and I'm stuck with him. We, you know, he's he's my family. Here's that review you were talking about, Burl. It says, "Stop what you are doing and read this book. Fantastic. I have read them all, and this is hands down the best cop true crime book yet. Ken Urell just tells it like." It is, and I felt like I was in the backseat of a ride-along. Everything being set in New York City makes it all that better. I grew up in this era, and I can relate to it all. Never a dull moment. And in the end, Kenya Will makes the choice of a lifetime. The next Netflix movie is good, but the book is great. Best book I've ever read. Five wow. Stars, sure. I like that. Yeah, that's, I, I exactly. That's why when I read it, I was like, oh, boy. If, <laughs> if I thought my mother had a, an Amazon account or even a computer, I would thought she wrote it. <laughs> a, I agree with that's this review. That's it. That makes me feel <laughs> real good right. to hear that. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it sounds like it's, a, it's a, a retired cop to me because he was, a, you know, more of a into the police stuff than the criminal stuff, I think, yeah. from, from what I could tell in the review. But there was a couple know, other... Uh, Total anonymous stuff on the Internet. Yeah, there's a couple other uh, good, really good reviews by people who are obviously in law enforcement who said, yeah, that's what it was like. <laughs> you know, this, this is the Yeah, there, yeah there were uh, quite a few from... Uh, uh, there was a DNA, uh, DEA agent in there that gave us a nice review. There was a, a couple, of, couple of law enforcement nice reviews. Yeah, I, I get it both ways, too. They, they write me personally, and I'll get, you know... It probably runs 60-40 for me, 40, you know, and 40 against from uh, retired law enforcement. It's more of the uh, the old-time cops and, and officers that are there in that in that era who relate more to it. And the younger cops now, I would say, are, you know, okay, you, uh, you, you, you made the right choice, but you should have never been involved in that, blah, blah, you know. It, 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 yeah, very Sunday morning quarterback. Down, I agree, I agree. Up and down emotionally how, uh, how different it is between the older cops and the younger cops. Yeah, now I heard, I've heard it in, in uh, what was it, uh, Michael Bordy was telling me that some guys will be in the uh, police academy 
Specifically, I want to be like Ken Urell and Michael Dowd were when they were crooked. Uh, <clears throat> Michael Gordain, Chili yeah. Pimpin' in Atlantic City. Yeah. yeah there were, there were a, lot of, a lot of, you know, once we were arrested, we became, not personally, but internal affairs would teach about what we did in the academy. Yeah. We actually became an academy class, our, our exploits. Hmm. And there's a certain percentage of people, such as uh, Mr. Gordine, who said, that's what I want to do when I grow up. There's a lot of people that write me who said, I'm right there along with you. Active cops now who said, if I was in that situation, I'd probably be right there with you doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. However, they should look at the end result. Oh, that's what I always, was that's what I always write back. <laughs> look how it turned you might out. I want to be right there with me at the beginning, but at the end, look how it turned out, man. <laughs> Check yourself. Mm -hmm. Very, yeah, very few just, uh, you know, skate. Uh, true. Yeah. Every, almost everybody, you know, gets caught in the end. So all you got to do is read the papers nowadays. There are, you know, bad cop stories all over the place, which is uh, why I, I'm actually working on a second book now related to that. Yeah, yeah, you and Frank are working on a book on uh, a compendium of crooked cops. Yep. <laughs> Shouldn't have any trouble I've been collecting stories for, for, for so many years. So we have literally hundreds and hundreds of bad cop stories. I'd never be able to fit them all in one book. Oh, yeah, we had, uh, I had one, uh, I mean, I wasn't in the limit, but it, it took place in Seattle. And I wound up using it as a plot in the, my book, Capture the Saint. It was a true story of you had this corrupt cop, this is just like someone of a movie, who decides to murder uh, this fellow that, knows too much and it's just like a great b movie he gets right. the guy in the alley he's got to get on him and just like a movie he says i'm killing you because da 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 and after he explains why he's killing him he shoots him dead when they take the body to the morgue you know what the guy has on him a micro cassette recorder strapped to his body yep of course yep he knew he was going to get killed but he was going to make sure that people knew why yeah yeah i mean uh even even in uh, in Betrayal in Blue, at the beginning of the book, you you gave a little history of corruption in the NYPD, going back to what the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. And boy, I'll tell you, it's uh, was I was I said I think it was a line with something like, uh, uh, if you want to smell a rose, appreciate a rose, you don't sniff the soil that it grew from, right? But if you want to understand a rose, you have to know what fed it. Exactly. And that's the way it is with uh, uh, we, want to, we all want to know our own uh, uh, medical history, our parents' medical history, so we know what things we're, we're uh, in danger of getting or may have. And it's the same with, uh, with cities. They have their own personality, their own medical history, shall we say. And the, uh, the history of, of, uh, of New York City is one of repeated uh, episodes of, of corruption and they have an investigation, and they look at it, and they go, mm-hmm. And yep. then 10, 20 years later, all over again. That, that was the whole big thing. They used to say it was 20-year uh, cycles, you know, Serpico to, to us, and then uh, <coughs> prior to that, 20 years prior to that. But once we hit, there was multiple. It was, it was like every year, every other year, there was a big scandal. And you had the, the Dirty 30 precinct, you had the 7-3 precinct. There were, there were all types of scandals. It was, it was no more 20 years. The, uh, yeah, time goes uh, faster uh, now. The, the, the so, of, so, uh, so narcotics and, and crack especially, just it, it turned the whole, whole, you know, the whole view of the police department. The guys out in, in those areas were getting burnt out faster than the, the guys in, you know, in history where it take them eight, nine years to get burned out. Guys were getting burned out in a year. Oh, yeah. You have to rotate the cops out of those precincts. Well, it's the same way in, uh, in people who work in mental health, like in mental hospitals. They will get burned out. Now, in the United States, they just let them stay there until they become like Nurse Ratchet, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in, uh, my, my uh, uh, ex-wife, uh, may she uh, be well. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was well done. May she rest in peace. <clears throat> well, she's not dead yet. Uh, but uh, We're working on it, right? No, no, that sounds like a Monty Python line. Yeah. She's not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, really. I'm quite fine. I'm yeah. feeling better. <laughs> exactly. So, Ken, since, since, uh, since all this went down, what, what do you do? What do you do for a living? 
books is uh, well, the first couple of years once we uh, basically you know left the state and moved down to Florida I raised the children and my wife went back to work and once my children were old enough you know middle school and beyond I went back to work in the automotive field and he also had many hours of community service yeah, that I, he I, I, I was part of my sentence in I, you know, my they loved him probation for uh, three years after my you know this the sentence in and then uh had to do a, a, a thousand or eleven hundred hours of community service. So what did you do? Pick up the, garbage by the side of the freeway. It, it was a. I would call it. It was a like an AMVETS type of situation where you, yes. Salvation Army, you go out on the truck and you pick up stuff from from the people right. donating it and you bring it back to the, the call center. Well, that's the good. Now, you got, you got to tell me, when the book came out, the documentary came out, uh, and you were kind of outed there locally. I mean, did your friends and neighbors? Did they suddenly look at you weird? I, I lost. I lost. A, I lost a group of friends. Yeah, I mean, had a. Yes. I had a tight core group of friends who. Uh, it, the story hit the paper, and the, the documentary came out, and they just walked away. Them, and they didn't even say goodbye. They just walked away from me. Wow. And, and it, it's strange because they're not exactly angels. So. And and Kenny also, whatever friends we became close with, we always offered full standpoint, the true crime is, is a female-driven genre, uh, and that cop books are, like I said, uh, when we started off, heavy on the testosterone, light on the quinona and kale. <laughs> uh, but we felt that it was really, really important, because otherwise you're missing the dynamics, the human, you know, dynamics of the story if, if you don't have a Dory in there. Uh, I thought it was like, like a, a, a barometer, an emotional barometer to what's going on. I definitely went through it, but again, I have no regrets. I mean, he, Kenny's a good man. Yeah, and, that, uh, that, that, because he, of, he went through a, you know, a totally narcissistic, uh, narcissistic phase and thinking, you know, he was unstoppable as youth. 
may believe of themselves. They're immortal, and nothing's going to happen to them. I try to be, back in the day, letting him know that wasn't true, but it fell on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. But I stuck it out because I knew through it all it would get to him. And unfortunately, the worst had to happen for him to understand, but look where we are now. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, all, it could have been a lot worse. Absolutely. So uh, you're lucky from that standpoint. For all of us, yeah. for the children, for myself, and for him. If I would have left, I mean, it would have been a different outcome. Uh, I, I see. I, I, I got to thank Suffolk County, really, because the, the arrest is what you know turned our lives around. If Suffolk County didn't get on, turn on, you know, turn on to us, and we kept going on and on. Eventually, one of us, who knows, would have been killed, or we would have killed somebody. Yeah. Because we, it wasn't a. Uh, a nice employment field we were involved no, in. No, no, there was no moral one pay either. Think about other drug, think about if, drug uses. Think about if he would have followed his ex-partner's next oh my God. venture after the arrest, okay? I like to think he finally saw me as the voice of reason, and I knew that his ex-partner was cooperating in his own way, trying to look for a best deal for himself, believe it or not. But um, his story was, you know, convoluted because he always tried to make himself look better. Yeah. Better, and that was uh, his shortcoming, and probably still is. So, so, so there's not a lot of bridge games between the couples, is there? No. Bonnie, uh, well, um, there's not even a couple anymore. His wife no. left him immediately. So. Yeah. And I was in touch with her for quite some time, and I still have so much love for her. We were best friends. We were best friends. Um, the difference between us was I was absolutely in love with my husband, where she pretty much had it wrapped up in her head that she knew this was going to go down bad, and she was ready and prepared to yeah, I think we life. all knew it was going to go down. We just all looked at the finality of it in, in different ways. I mean, my ex-partner's wife actually came up to us one day and said, when you two get arrested, I'm leaving him. So, whereas Dory said, well, you know, I'm sticking it out. So she already had it in mind. I mean, you can look down the road and you can see the avalanche coming. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we, Absolutely. I, I, I the women did. The women did. The men just didn't listen. Yeah. Yeah, the women saw it. I tried to withdraw once I was I knew when the cover was there and the detectives were there, but uh, but it was too late. It, at, at that point, it's too late. I mean, if, once they're investigating you, it's too late. Yeah, and once they uh, they got you in their sights, and if they want to make it more than it was, they could have. Yeah, absolutely, sure. Absolutely. Because uh, I, I saw that. I was uh, just talking about that with uh, our pal uh, Pavel Stanimirovic. There was this fellow. He probably saw this arrested. Just recently, uh, I can't recall his uh, name off the top of my head, but he used to be in Punch's crew. And right. uh, uh, he used to, and when uh, Punch went to prison, this guy just kept doing what he was taught, you know, uh, hiring people. And they're trying to make it like he's, uh, uh, you know, the brains of some big organization or something, an enterprise that they use that term, you know, for legally. It's a, a such right. and such enterprise. And uh, I was telling Aaron Moriarty uh, today, <laughs> No, I said, uh, get hold of me and I'll tell you what the real story is. Right, right. Uh, because it's okay. Oh, and I love that story, by the way. Stealing Manhattan, is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Oh, wonderful story. It's, it's a love punch. And, uh, Very intriguing. Yeah, it's, well, it's a story nobody's heard. And uh, and that's why I was uh, telling Aaron, I said, I've, I've been on this story for three years. And I said, Nike. I mean, the, the thing that was so fascinating to me, when I first read the first story about this fellow being arrested, it said the things he did, almost word for word, the description was exactly the same as what the Major Case Squad put out in 1994, what the FBI put out in 1992. I have press releases and newspaper articles that are word for word what they're saying now, going back to the 1970s. Yep. And wow. no one's looking at the big picture, and the, I can tell you what the I'll tell them what the big picture is, and they're you know they're they're seeing things. I think law enforcement has a tendency to look at everything as if it's a mafia family type thing, you know. Right. 
and they're not all like that. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly what, what they what they did with us. I mean, we were all doing our own thing, and then we came to, came together. But instead of charging us with just drug distribution or, or drug possession or whatever it was, then they wrapped it up, handed it over to the feds, and turned it into a RICO enterprise. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was no enterprise where money was handed up from one person to another. It was just criminals all act, interact with other criminals. It doesn't make it an enterprise. Right, exactly. And that's my point that I'm going to explain to everybody. I sure how this goes back all the way to uh, 19, uh, uh, late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah, once, they, once, once the Fed came up with the racketeer and influence chart, sure. Yeah. They start to put everything together. A common scheme or plan is another one. I have seen so many prosecutors lose cases because they try to go on this common scheme or plan theory. They, they try to make it all into a pyramid where the low-level guys are handing money up yeah, to the higher yeah, yeah. and, and orders are being handed down. It's, it's not right that. It's just criminals all interact together. It doesn't make them a team and an enterprise. Right, exactly. That's, that's, the, that's the point. I was trying to explain it. It's like when people make movies. Or go on a project. Like if, I'm go, like if I was going to go shoot commercials in Hawaii, which I did once, I'd say to myself, okay, I go, I'm going to want a cameraman. I got to want it to be someone I've worked with before, that I have a good rapport with, and I want to get a model, at least one of them, that I've worked with before who I know can take direction, and she can act as an intermediary with the talent I haven't worked with before. You know, and you put together your team. Uh, they're not part of a common scheme or plan. It's like I hire the people that I want to work with. Like if right. we're making a movie, what director do I want? What cinematographer? It doesn't mean they're all been together forever. Right. Or that they'll ever be together again. But on that particular project, you are. It, it makes it look a little more than it is, but in, in some respect, it's, it's actually good for the criminal because instead of, you know, 50 or 100 different charges, depending on how many crimes they followed you around for and investigated, it all gets wrapped up into one little neat charge of, of RICO. And plus, you, you're looking at federal time, which is a little easier than the, the messy state prison. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. a nightmare. It's like a bank robbery, which is 10-year statute of limitations on bank robbery. It's correct to 17 years for about everything else. But if, you, if uh, you're going to do a crime like that, do a bank robbery. Sure, you've got to wait 10 years to get away with it. But if they get you, it's much better being in the federal prison than just being in the other one. You know, you can be a club fed if you're lucky. So they say, yep. Yeah. Fortunately, I don't want to find out. I don't out. want to find out. <laughs> I don't want to find out. I think it's that clock on the wall says we have a RICO charge coming. Thank you, guys. Wow, that was fast. That was yeah, yeah, a very fast hour, and uh, look forward to having you guys back, of course. And uh, Absolutely. absolutely. Yep. Yeah, the book is called what Betrayal and Blue. The Bonnie and Clyde of True Crime. Betrayal and Blue. I'm no Bonnie. No, no Bonnie. Starring Don't call him Cowboys of New York and Mike. <laughs> take, take care, gentlemen. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks, Mike. Well, Thank great you. show. Thank you. What a great couple. They are wonderful. Uh, let's uh, let's dine with them sometime. Yes. Hey, Burl. Yeah. That was a good show. That was a good show. Yeah. Well, um, what's next? Magic Ben Allen and the Demons of Decadence Live from the Lightning Lounge here on OutlawRadioLive.com. Radio Live. Dot com.